You are listening to an irreverent podcast. Visit irreverent.fm for more content from our friends. Activist theology is built on the power of story, and we believe story can change the world. We also know that being in community with one another on this journey will help to build a movement committed to collective liberation and a more loving world. We have a commitment to the ethics and politics of Encajunto, or togetherness. And we are together in this work with you. Hi, folks. This is Dr. Robin. And this is Reverend Anna Galladay. And we are your hosts for the Activist Theology Podcast. It's time for all of us to get our hands dirty. Dr. Robin, how the heck are you? How's it going? We're in real life. Oh my God, IRL. We are here. We aren't looking at each other in a screen. Like, I'm not seeing you with the sunshine on and your face. And we have a beer. We have a beer in front of us, which usually we record. Well, actually, this is about the same time we record in real life, but because it's a weekday and we're not technically, like, not at our houses, we aren't drinking normally. We're drinking water. Right. And yeah. so I'm going to cheers you. IRL across the table. Salute. Oh my gosh. We're here, y'all. This is so exciting. We are recording live, as we have told you that we're going to be, from the Wild Goose Festival. We have people here listening now to you us. Know, now you know that it's not just a ruse. We really are here with people live. Can, I, can, I, can I just interrupt you? Always. And say, when I was here yesterday at 10 o'clock recording with Midge Noble, everybody go listen to Midge's podcast, yeah. Gay with God. Uh, there were people here who came to hear that podcast who told me later that they listened to our podcast. We have real listeners. Look, it, look someone, came, someone came up to me today and said, oh my God. I only hear your voice. I've never known what you look like. It's you. And I was like, oh, maybe we should start doing video with our podcast. And then I could put on my makeup and do my hair and everything. You could come as Ruby. Ruby. <laughs> Ruby you're, you're is alter, my drag Your alter ego, Ruby. Yes. I would I would just uh, like get up for the day because I would already have my makeup on. <laughs> and your and, hair was and done. Do my hair. Yeah. My hair is always yeah. done. Even when I'm alone in my house for five days and no one sees me except my dog, my hair is done. Yep. Truth, so we could do a video <laughs> podcast. We could. We and could. Then, and, then, and then when people see us at IRL, which I was told you don't say IRL, you only type IRL, but because I'm my autistic ass just says things, yes. I just continue to say IRL. It's Anyways, fair. we could then, when people see us in real life because we have a video podcast they would recognize us they would they would that's true that's true well we are excited to be here with an audience having a conversation um as you all know we are at the wild goose which is in hot springs north carolina it is oddly temperate normally we are here recording this podcast and i literally have i can feel the sweat like moving between my butt cheeks i am no longer that person i don't wipe your butt cheeks you don't you don't touch them but i just wanted everyone to get a visual of i just wanted to let people know that as part of the podcast i also don't wipe the butt cheeks yes thank you thank you for thank you for naming that but it's really weird to like not be here and have it blazing hot now yes it's a little later in the year i also think that we have we are 
benefiting from the cold front that came behind Hurricane Ida. Yeah. Or it was a a tropical storm by the time it reached us. But before we arrived here in Hot Springs, the remnants of Ida moved through. And so we are we are benefiting from this being a little later in the year, as well as the the cold front. And it is lovely. Like, I don't even know what to do with myself. I'm putting a jacket on in the evening and I feel I feel like I don't belong. Well, I belong at that taqueria across the railroad tracks. You you belong at that taqueria because there's beer and churros and tacos. And guess what else is there, friends? A skunk. Yes, we we met the skunk last night. There is a baby skunk that apparently has taken to living in the brewery courtyard. Um, I let... I did not know if anyone knew about it. And as a white woman who believes that it's her job to care and everyone around her, I went up to the manager and said, I just want to let you know that there's a skunk that's come in under the fence and it's kind of roaming the courtyard. And he was like, oh, yeah, just don't make any sudden movements. <laughs> I was like, OK, well, like we're really in the fucking country. <laughs> not that we didn't know that already, but country. We are. K U N T R Y. Or C U N. Well, that's something R-Y. different. I I okay, never mind. Um, so we are really excited to be here. And in normal fashion, this is the point where we let everyone that's listening know that we have a third human being sitting alongside us yeah. that we actually get to also be with in real yeah. life. Um, we is this have- kind of like the fourth wall? <laughs> it might be. Yeah. <laughs> it might be. We are really, really thrilled this um, week to welcome our friend, and we say that in all honesty. Um, We have known Jerome for several years now, being introduced to him through our dear friend Trip Fuller. And uh, first, um, I first met Jerome at a theology beer camp in Asheville uh, several years ago um, and I don't know Robin did you know Jerome prior to that or I was can't that- remember no, wh- I, I was introduced to both of you actually at the same time okay. oh wow okay. All right. okay. it was a wild week I bet that was a humdinger yeah it's uh- a <laughs> Yeah, I, I, fortunately, I have quite a bit of capacity, so it was great. It's good. I good, love it. Good. So, yeah, one of us is a lot. Both of us together is like it's well, too much. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. almost a full tank. <laughs> almost, but not quite. Almost, almost. Well, we are we are really thrilled to welcome Jerome Loeb, who is um, joining us to um, talk about one of our favorite ways to communicate in the world and with one another, and that is through underst- our understandings of the. Enneagram. Yes. And so, Jerome, why don't you tell the Activist Theology listeners a little bit about who you are, yeah. um, how you kind of come at this conversation, sure. and why the work you do as a doctor yeah. has also been informed by the your understanding and your work around the Enneagram. Yeah, I'd be happy to do that. Um, and thanks so much for the opportunity to be with you. It's always fun when you get a text message and you're like, that sounds fantastic. But I will point out... By that the way, the te- that text message was from me. I texted Jerome. I just want to say I'm responsible for this. You are. But if I had Jerome's number. Yeah, I'm, I would have done it because you'd pushed it off on me. Yeah, right. it's, it's also entertaining that I got the text message three days ago and was told nothing about what we were doing until 
today, which is pretty normal for me. So I'm, I'm, I'm well, uh, welcome to the Activist yeah. Theology Podcast, <laughs> where uh, we make it up as we go, y'all. As, as you guys will hear, all of you folks, lovely folks listening in here, I'll give you the bullet point of my story quick, and then it'll give you an indication that I'm really not uh, very easy to offend or make uncomfortable. Um, so my story is I'm a South African-born Congolese uh, refugee immigrant kid to Zimbabwean parents. I moved to the States in the early 90s, Knoxville, Tennessee, on a asylum status. A hundred bucks, two suitcases, a bipolar grandmother, and a parrot. My dad had to bring the parrot. The parrot cost more money than we had in our pocket. Sounds like a dad joke. Yeah, it was the beginning of a very very strange story, or a country song. <laughs> um, but uh, we ended up going to, I went to 11 different schools before I graduated high school. Uh, my dad passed uh, unexpectedly uh, when I was a freshman in high school at 14. He was 43. I have been a patient for 21 years uh, in terms of a migraine journey that started when I was 17. I have an identical twin brother who's never had a migraine, and I've averaged about 80 to 100 full-blown migraines per calendar year for the last 21 years. Uh, went to 21 specialists over nine years, spent $120,000 in the first six years of a marriage. When my wife got married, she was 19, I was 21. Finally got a diagnosis after 21 specialists, and no one knew what to do with it. So uh, I always tell folks, my, my undergrad is in digital animation, special effects, and graphic design, and I did music full-time. I never intended to become a doctor. <laughs> I don't look like a doctor. I don't sound like a doctor. Uh, the only reason I became a doctor was because I couldn't find a good one. Uh, that's been the nature of my story. So my, my world around uh, clinical stories, faith-based or spiritual-based stories, enneagrammatic stories, pretty much everything in my life is a, is a consequence of not getting the answers to the questions that I had and going, what would it look like to try and maybe innovate something new uh, and the thing that we're going to talk about today is I wrote the first book on the brain-based model of the Enneagram uh, so in my clinical world uh, I am board certified in chiropractic physical therapy and neurology uh, and then I'm board eligible which means I've done all the work but I haven't sat for the exams because I'm married run a practice and have three kids five and under uh, but I'm board eligible in movement disorders concussion traumatic brain injury vestibular rehabilitation neurochemistry and childhood neurological de developmental disorders yeah, and so I always th I always feel less than worthy just sitting next to Dr. Robin, and now I'm like sitting next to these two humans, and I really feel like I could sink into my chair and just become a puddle of like pastoral goo on the floor, and it would still be okay. No, Absolutely. but what we really need you to do is fart glitter because you're a seven on the enneagram. <laughs> I am. I am. I, I am. I won't do that into the microphone though. No. <laughs> oh. Well, I'm here for that. <laughs> and my identical twin brother and my oldest brother are both very efficient in seven. Mm -hmm. So the language that we'll use and we'll talk about today was I, I created the model specifically to answer questions that I kept uh, getting pushback on. Uh, like what happens if you feel like you're more than one type? Uh, what is your lowest number and does that matter? And why are we not doing a lot of trauma-trained uh, counseling and work through the Enneagram? Because if you're going to unlock trauma, uh, you need to be very conscientious of the doors that you're opening. Mm -hmm. So I bring a lot of the clinical side in. But in the world of functional neurology, I do all complex rehab without drugs or surgery. And the Enneagram is actually a pretty fascinating way if you do it as a whole brain approach to say that you're all nine numbers simultaneously. You just have different proficiencies. Kind of think of it, you've got, uh, you've got pilots, flight attendants, and passengers, and everybody's got baggage. Um, most of the time, 
understand when you're talking about your type, you're talking about the pilot. <laughs> but the question is who else is involved and what else has he experienced? Because uh, if your lowest number gets into the driver's seat, it's going to be a little bit of turbulence until somebody more effective steps in. So it's efficiency-based rather than singular type-based. So. I love that. So tell us a little bit about your Enneagram journey, your personal yeah. Enneagram journey. Who are you, as you understand it, based on the Enneagram and... Um, also, and we have talked about the Enneagram a, a good deal on the Activist Theology podcast, but could you just give a very basic understanding of what the Enneagram is for yeah. those folks that might be listening that are like, what the, what, hell is that? What the heck is this and, and why should I give a shit about it? Yeah, totally. I mean, everybody's everybody's done a personality profile or assessment that lets you know that you're like an otter or you're an eagle <laughs> or... Well, now, you're, now you're an, an otter is something very particular in a very particular culture I just want you to know yeah Robin is a sloth okay did you hear otter or udder I heard otter okay because we're in the south I'm just making sure what culture <laughs> yeah because in gay male culture yeah there you know you have an otter yeah and and you know you have wolves absolutely you know and bears. so and bears and so, and so I, I we'll just want bears for sure I just want to make sure that we're that we're distinguishing yeah. what we're talking about we're gonna go down the enneagram path oh okay yeah. not we're going not down, the yeah. not the pride festival costume path yeah. okay no okay yeah okay. no this is not the cosplay where everybody comes dressed up as a furry um, this is different <laughs> I work with a lot of very interesting patients <laughs> okay um, but no it's uh, basically in all of the personality profiles, one of the consistent things that people see is it's really tied to behavior mm -hmm. or job description. Uh, I think the reason most people connect with the Enneagram is it's more motivationally based. It's why are you showing up in the world, not how are you showing up in the world. Uh, it's a core piece. It's an identity piece. Uh, but from a really high level, the Enneagram has nine different kind of ways of showing up. Uh, everything is in triads. So for anybody who comes from any background, a lot of things in the world tend to be Trinitarian. Protons, neutrons, electrons. Methodists. Methodists. It is, right? <laughs> so there's a lot of things that come in threes, um, but the Enneagram is set up in three intelligence centers, and everybody knows that they have this in them, which is, I know how to think, I have mental processes, I know how to feel, I've got emotional connection and awareness, and then there's sensations that happen in my body that allow me to do and act or react. So the Enneagram is just a container for helping you know how you think, feel, and act. Mm. And there's different titles for kind of the way, I say it's fluencies, so same language, different dialect, and it's global experience, um, but in most of those situations, uh, if you look at the Enneagram as a global experience, there are three continents, three countries on each continent, and there are cities within those countries, a lot easier to understand how you could possibly navigate from one place to the other. Because unless you live on this campground, you came from somewhere else. Uh, you just happen to call somewhere home, but it doesn't mean that you can't go elsewhere, even in the last two years virtually. Uh, and the Enneagram is the same. It's just a landscape view of where you live predominantly. But like I tell people, if I'm South African-born immigrant from Congo to Zimbabwe, parents I've lived in I went to 11 different schools lived in five countries and had 26 addresses where am I from the only thing I can tell you is I'm from earth right yeah. so the Enneagram is the same thing you got to move away from this kind of personality nationalism idea of where you live and where your tribe is uh, and go it's a global experience you don't have to be that thing but the reason people love the Enneagram is because it, it really helps you to connect with why do I do that why does it help me to feel safe what are my strategies and then let's unpack how that it ends up expressing itself. So we'll spill the tea. Robin and I will will be um, partners in this journey. But um, before we spill the tea on 
ourselves and one another regarding our Enneagram types and where that might lead us. Why don't you tell us what your sure. continent is, what your country is, what yeah. city you live in, in totally. Enneagram world? Yeah, no, I love it. That, uh, so, and this is actually why I'm super transparent. I put my profile in the book that I wrote so people can just see if you know how to read it, then you, you can read my mail. Um, but <laughs> I'm an identical twin brother, so it's very interesting to see my experience with somebody who had the exact same encounter as me, but very different expressions, right? Um, but I am highest in what's called a heart center. Uh, so I lead with heart. Mm-hmm. Um, that's my collective center. That's the highest. My second highest is uh, head and my lowest is gut. So I will be inclined to have a feeling and an emotional relational connection. Then I'll have a lot of thought about it, but I'm not necessarily going to be decisive or active versus somebody who's very spontaneous, not pointing any fingers. But decisiveness and reactivity are different for different people. Mine is not reactive. Mine is heart-based. So I live in the heart in terms of a center. Uh, I tell people from an efficiency standpoint, if you know what your top numbers are, you can know who your executive team is. Uh, My executive team are my pilots are two, six, and three. So the way that I turn that into a phrase is I guarantee spaces for people to feel safe and loved. Those three things together are what happens in my clinic, what happens in encounters with people, because the guarantees are the six, the creativity and the fostering is the three, and then the need to be safe and loved is the two. So all three of those things together are my culture. Now, I I know after I learned that I lived on the spectrum of autism, I reached out to you because I wanted to understand a little bit more how I worked and whatnot. And I lead with a five and I think probably I'm like head, heart, and then gut um, or body. Um, But tell us a little bit about how how you because i i find you to be a really incredible resource around the enneagram and i've i've been studying the enneagram ever since i finished seminary and was doing my clinical pastoral education in critical care and as a as a group we did the enneagram and we learned how different we were but when i learned it it was like you were one number uh, but you're really proposing a more dynamic approach to the Enneagram. So help us, help us with that. Uh, And then I want to talk about um, being a five and being a seven or leading with those numbers and where that gets us into trouble. And Lord, (laughs) Yeah. Um, well, the interesting thing is my, my when you asked the question about journey, I was introduced to the Enneagram in the exact same time I was introduced to Father Richard Rohr because mm. I listened to a 10-hour recording of Richard going through it. And then, lo and behold, I end up in a, a space where I did the living school with him and, and got to have three separate one-on-one conversations with him over the last couple of years. And that was exactly what we talked about, moving beyond type nice. into dynamic spaces. But I spent 10 years in a lot of intense training and a lot of schooling because that I'm very high in self-certifying. I don't feel qualified most of the time. What I just mentioned to you about all the things that I'm eligible in just means that I'm a good student. It doesn't mean that I'm qualified. Because I don't know if you guys know, but the person who graduated last from clinical school uh, or healthcare is still called doctor, (laughs) even if they graduated last. So I self-certify a lot. So I actually spent 10 years studying. And my experience with the idea of the brain-based Enneagram happened before I'd even seen the image of the Enneagram. When I was listening to the recording, I said, this sounds a lot like brain 
basic brain function because I was in the middle of doing a neurochemistry fellowship uh-huh. and I, I had no indoctrination to the Enneagram so my bias was God this sounds just like a normal human being so the last 10 years has been trying to make sure that the model works and if it doesn't work with brain function then something's wrong with the model because mm. the brains we know a uh, human brain functions in a pretty uh, it's built in a very standard way and it functions in very unique ways yep. so what ended up happening with the Enneagram for my example right um, is the way that I explained it especially because I run a trauma informed and trauma trained practice I specialize in complex unresolved cases so I work with everybody that has failed everywhere and, th- and that's my story too that when you look at the Enneagram and you look at all nine numbers think of it like a fluency of what you learned growing up and some of us grew up in households that spoke particular languages or particular dialects that we chose not to reinforce and we had exit strategies so how can somebody grow up in a very conflict based household and be very low in eight that's because they had an exit strategy if you were in a conflict based household and you had to become proficient in eight you had to learn to speak that language in order to survive so it's a fluency conversation but when you look at all nine types it's basically saying I'm motivated by different things and if you stack all of the priorities you can see what helps you to move towards a a life giving or a safer encounter and understanding that's that's two things right so just for a second having a life giving safe encounter doesn't mean that everything's going well it means that you may have an environment where things are just not going as bad okay like I had 25 migraines in 2018 and it's the best year that I've had in 20 years and I had 25 not very many people are thinking a 25 migraine and 200 headache year is a good year that was an amazing year yeah because I had less pain yeah so we're looking at saying okay the reason that you lead with five or you lead with seven is not only because it reinforces life-giving situations so also really good at mitigating life-threatening situations Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and all of those things end up creating an environment where like for instance what you just heard in the last five minutes how many of you guys think I'm high in five right like if you know the Enneagram the five is the researcher the observer the investigator five is my lowest number by a mile Mm -hmm. right it's my how not my why Mm -hmm. so the reason that I investigate and I research and I put so much time and energy into doing something that costs me a lot because it's not my natural fluency Mm -hmm. because there's no relational connection somebody who's really quintessentially five doesn't need to be around another person I don't know who I am without the mirror of another person wait did you just say I just want to make I just want to make sure I heard it right someone just someone just got their hermit status confirmed 100% because I don't have a need to see people no it's literally it's not the language that you speak you can you can be sustained without the context of another person mirroring back to you right I can't get a and you guys I'm an identical twin I didn't get my own bed until I was 13 all right so do you think I might have learned some efficiency of what it means to know who I am in reflection to another person who is literally my mirror in real life right so if I'm by myself without any outside influence or I I then I have to determine what it feels like to be safe with the only relationship in the room. Same. Right? And that's very different for me. So, so I love it's that, different spaces. I love that you name that because I was um, in our pre-conversation around this. I was curious because I had not remembered what my lowest number was until um, we were kind of chatting about how we were going to work through this podcast. And um, so just as a as a preface, I am um, an accomplished illustrator and painter. My degree is in my undergraduate degree is in graphic design. If I could be doing anything in the world and didn't have to make money and didn't have to kind of feel compelled to please anyone, I'd be painting. I'd be installing public art displays. I'd be I'd literally be a creative, uh, an an artist, fine art artistic creative all the time my lowest number is four yeah 
Oh wow! And 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 I and I am three is higher. I'm I am I am two points lower on a three than I am on a seven. That's because one of the biggest misconceptions is that the four is creative. It's not. The four is imaginative. Right. Right. A four can literally live in the world and have an interior castle that says, I know exactly what I'm building, but it's not produced externally. It's produced internally. Mm-hmm. A three, the, the reason I moved creativity from a four to a three is the root word for creativity is create. A three does not who they does not know who they are unless there's something that they can externally put in front of you that you can weigh and measure as a distancing tool from their own value. A four doesn't need you to justify that. Mm. Right? Oh my god! Like the little hole just blew out the side of my brain when you said that. Yeah. Holy crap! Well, you're with a functional neurologist, so you're I safe. I, mean, I guess it's fair. Yeah, he can. He can, he can, he can fix me. <laughs> yeah. So, and you guys see, this is like what's on my shirt. It says, right. "You are not broken." The whole process that I also came into contact with, especially in the enneagram, and to name it clearly, the enneagram, the contemporary enneagram is 50 years old. But the contemporary enneagram, in terms of how popularized it's become, is really, really heavily rooted in evangelical kind of Christianity. Right. right. So the challenge is a lot of the text that exists now is still shame based because it's still fluid with substitutionary atonement that you're naturally just finding out ways to suck less mm. and I'm like that's actually not the way we're built we're, we're constantly evolving so the opening line in the book is this is not about being less broken it's about becoming more whole right because if you start a conversation from a shame based perspective your brain hardwires life-threatening encounters to avoid them. Everybody remember where you were when 9-11 happened? Mm -hmm. We're close to 20 years. How crazy is that, right? You know what time of day it was, who you were with, what you were wearing, because this is what's happening in the pandemic. It's called a limbic attachment. It's a life-threatening encounter. It doesn't matter if you were in Georgia or California, what you watched on the news your body thought was happening to you. So it's like, I got to remember that at all costs, because that is so painful, I don't want to encounter it. Mm -hmm. And then you get introduced to a personality profile that says, hey, FYI, you suck a lot, and you're your brain goes, God, that is so true and that is so scary. I feel so much shame. And then that's on repeat. And then every single time you go to re-encounter the work, your brain's like, I thought we weren't supposed to come back here. And everybody's like, why is it so hard to do the inner work? Because you started from a shame-based conversation mm. and that's not helpful. It's actually life-threatening. So if you start the conversation with, hey, FYI, man, this isn't unhealthy. It's just unpracticed. Mm. I'm not unhealthy in five. I'm unpracticed in five. I'm not unhealthy in eight. I'm unpracticed in eight, right? Am I practiced in two? Absolutely. Two has been very, very helpful for me to be able to survive, okay? that's. I see, I see what you did you there. You see what I did there, yeah. right? But I'm also really efficient in two, six, and three, because if I can produce something meaningful, then people can give me affirmation on who I am. And my two's like, awesome. So my three becomes an adjective. Mm-hmm. And then I can go, man, but I've had so little guarantees growing up. Yo, we had a household before my dad died that our best year as a family was $17,000 for a family of six. And I grew up in a household with a bipolar grandmother who tried to kill my twin brother and I twice, because she thought we were intruders. I don't have a lot of familiarity with guarantees, but my fluency said, if I can get security and if I can get safety and if I can forecast another story for another time, then maybe... Oh, there's the emotion because my brain thinks it's happening. Mm-hmm. Then maybe it won't happen that I ask everybody to go to the movies and my dad dies on the recliner while we're at the movies because mm. I asked to go to the movies. Mm. So let's make sure that we forecast properly, mm. right? These are all narratives that we're building in, right? I love that you name the shame piece and the tie that the Enneagram has back to kind of this evangelical model of uh, of what we've what many of us have have come to embody. I, I can't tell you the number of people who have 
I uh, friends of mine who have taken the Enneagram and have said um, the Enneagram says I'm a three, but I don't want to be a three because threes are liars. Yeah. Um, I don't want to be a one because ones are um, bossy and and perfectionist and like I, I, I that's that's not who I am. Right. I don't want to be a six because sixes are like middle like very like level middle like non like non-committal in in, in many ways totally. and it's like I, I that that anticipation that your number is in some way attached to the shame-based narrative yeah. that you've been given for so long is really powerful and it, and it just speaks to the way that every single thing that we have that we have at our disposal to inform how we are and who we are in the world can be co-opted so, by a, a structure of of shame. of shame and and of power 100 th- that limits that limits the imagination of it yeah. well i think i think what what dr jerome does for us is cast a vision for a different kind of anthropology yeah that is not shame-based yeah. and, and that actually talks about wholeness not as a place that we want to achieve Absolutely. but is our starting place 100 yeah. and and i think uh, you know, in my field of theology and ethics, we have really toxic anthropology. Mm-hmm. We have a really toxic and a very low anthropology. Um, I have I have too high of an anthropology to be Lutheran, and I think that when we start from a, a sort of higher place. That's how people talk about it. High anthropology, low anthropology. It's problematic. It's a binary. But what you're really offering us is is a more holistic vision yeah. of the human, of okay. the anthropos, that, that can then connect the dots to a more dynamic way of being in the world, which completely destabilizes our inherited theologies. Yeah, and I'm low in eight, so intentionally creating spaces that are disruptive is something that I have to be very careful about because yeah. I'm not a conflict oriented and this is the thing also and I, I think if you almost raised your hand yes and I think can I intuit a question I'll show you what it looks like to be high in heart and two were you going to ask if we could just give a little bit of context for what each of the types are I was and I also wanted to Yeah, cool. So for those of you that are listening live, um, the question, uh, uh, Jerome's question was affirmed by our our friend in the audience. um, And she asked to then kind of also expand on um, how we find the shame kind of correlations that 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 the shame free pieces of that. Absolutely. So what was your name, by the way? Nan. Nan? Anne, awesome. Thanks, Anne. Um, so that's an example of I'm in dialogue with Dr. Robin and and Anna. Anna, not Anna, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and Anne is 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 motioning for a question, and my brain is picking up so much of the environment that I have a high probability of understanding what her question is, and she hasn't even asked a question yet. Now that's a gift, but you all realize that if you're in the world going through this phase where you feel literally everything that somebody's going through that significantly, I'm going to run out of fuel faster. Oh, yeah. I'm okay. partner to someone like this yeah. Yeah. who feels everything and like here I am, a five on the Enneagram although I know I'm dynamic yeah, I but move you're around, logic driven which but, is great um, and I'm 
tuned out to the energy of the world yeah so i like have no clue what's going on over here yeah and if we look at it from a survival-based strategy and and i'll give you a kind of a little bit of a container and for everybody some of the placeholders and also the shame-free kind of options but if you start with the idea that 100 percent of what we're doing from a brain-based perspective is survival strategies you're trying to move towards life-giving encounters and away from life-threatening encounters you're mitigating pain or you're increasing pleasure but this is innate It's hardwired into who we are from an ancestral genetic tree and line all the way to how we express epigenetically. It's nature, nurture, and practice Mm. or discipline-based conditioning. It's all three of them collectively. It's not both and. It's both and then some, right? It's a lot. So your ability to be high in five says my survival strategy is better if I can mute some of the outside stimulus. And what is my relationship with being stimulated? What are my strategies? Mine is do I survive if I don't read the room and I don't? know what somebody needs really taxing but as a clinician a male clinician who leads with heart and nurturing with complex cases i don't know about the rest of y'all but most of the doctors i went to sucked okay and their bedside manner is terrible and my therapy starts when we say hello right so the way that i greet you changes the way that your body shows up in the room and your healing starts before i've even started treating you man who right? would love to have a doctor like this right yeah everyone raised their hand yeah. So to your point, and with a question, um, I'll start with the second part and then answer the first. There's not a lot of shame-free resources, um, and I'm allergic to self-promotion, so I'm just going to tell you the only one that I know is my stuff. Samesies. <laughs> yeah. Um, so on my website, drjerome.com, just Dr. Jerome, there's a there's a product section for e-courses and the book. Uh, the place that really talks about the shame-free stuff is the e-courses All Nine or Expressions, and then I have another e-course called the Neurotheology of Self-Care, which is taking people from faith-based backgrounds through a much healthier ethos of what it looks like to take care of yourself without being shamed because you're taking care of yourself right <laughs> and and if you send me an email or a dm on social media i have two copies of his book i'd be happy to mail you my extra copy there you go. so j- but just reach out to me and i'd be happy to mail it to you thank you so when we're talking about okay well i don't understand i literally have no context for the enneagram i've never heard of it before cool let's take the enneagram off the table and let's take job descriptions and titles off the table because the number one my book is actually called The Brain-Based Enneagram. You are not a number, right? Because when you get into the Enneagram world, what is the number one question that everybody asks you? What's your number? I, 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 I am, I a, am number. a number. And I'm like, look, your ego and survival <laughs> strategies are keeping you bunkered down. And there are still people that are bunkered down because of the Cold War. They're probably very high in self-preservation five. But my point is, is you can really attach to a particular thing as a safety strategy, right? Anybody know a friend? I'm not saying it's you. But anybody know a friend who either ascribes to a particular college football team or pastor or political figure? And they're like, that person is the ethos and the, the idol yeah. of what it means. You've got archetypes, okay? The Enneagram is based on Super attacked right now. Okay. I mean, you are like rave about the New Orleans Saints. Yeah. Why? Why you gotta call me out? Yes, yeah, I'm was. super attached to a football team. Yeah, and because watch, we watch do truth telling, so we tell the people the truth, <laughs> and that's why we have an expert on to yeah. help us tell the truth. Thank, thank you, Dr. Robin. Thank so you. When we're going through this, it's easier to look at it based on uh, fluencies and relative relationships with. Okay. So I'm gonna give you two bullet points for each of the types. 
types and I'm not going to tell you what the types are and then you're just going to go what is my relative relationship with that is that something that's approachable for me unapproachable do I have a high fluency in it do I have literally no idea what you're saying does it come naturally would I have to intentionally engage in it because it's not my norm like that gives you an idea do I engage or disengage do I approach or do I move away it's these sort of things okay so what's your relative relationship with discomfort Hmm. What's your relative relationship with feeling like you want to grow as a person? What's your relationship with rest and avoiding conflict? What's your relationship with iterating and going, you know what, that could be a little bit better. Uh, and actually, I really know how to speak up for other people. Sometimes I struggle to speak up for myself, but sometimes I'm really good at speaking just off the cuff. Man, I'm the person who doesn't think about it first. It just comes out. Or what does it look like to go, man, I really care if people feel valued. I need to feel valued. And I love people really, really well, so much so unconditionally that I forget that loving people well sometimes means I have to set conditions. But you just said something really gross, and I don't know how to do that. Or you're saying, I need to create something. I need to make something. I need to be successful. But that's because it's birthed out of a place of confidence. But oftentimes my confidence is feigned because I don't have anybody that I confide in. Or is it that I need authentic relationships? I'm not a wide. I'm a deep person and I feel and I see that the reality of the world is that for things to be beautiful they have to go through really hard things and I've gone through really hard things but that gives me the gift to be compassionate I know what it's like to suffer so I can suffer with people but we don't have to talk about it we can just be with each other or is it that you're in a space where you go man if I don't get my questions answered I feel real uncomfortable I feel really unsafe so I sit in places where I need more information the data helps me to feel supported I don't need somebody to tell me I need the data to be reliable and that gives me that gift of being able to have clarity and insight. God, it's really important for me to be able to see clearly, but sometimes I can see a little too much because my gift is seeing things. Or is it that I need to feel safe, I need to feel secure, and that's dependent on the loyalties in my life, the commitments in my life, the people that I can rely on, because I either grew up in a world where people did not come through reliably, and I needed to reinforce that and find it, or I have a really good model of what it looks like for somebody to be loyal and committed to me. Or maybe it's this situation, last one, I don't know what it's like to live unless I feel energized and excited and enthusiastic. I know what it's like to go, God, this is a life-giving experience and it's happening by the moment. And if I don't have a life-giving experience in the next few moments, I'm going to feel like I'm having a life-threatening experience because I'm not having a life-threatening and life-giving experience in the moment. So I end up using levity to neuter pain because it's a lot easier to work through the world through incitement and flamboyance and... He's reading your mail. I'm saying these might be things. <laughs> but that your you hair guys, looks good. But, but you guys hear. So if you just just hear the gifts for just a second, what is your relationship with growth, rest, agency, unconditional love, confidence, compassion, insight, guarantees, and? experiences, or I'm sorry, inspiration, right? I have no doubt that Anna is one of the most capable inspirational people. When you're around somebody like her, your pronoun is she, yes. her, right? When you're, when you're around somebody like Anna, you can feel inspired. You also see that people who are really good at inspiration tend to hyperventilate because they're always <laughs> inspiring. So there's a lot of stuff that shows up in the body that's also manifested in the way we encounter the world. He's but all of, those words that I, all of those words that I just gave you, how many of you go, I have a connection 
one so more than one of those mm-hmm. or you go you know what I realize I don't exactly have a fluency in some of those words you just rang to what you naturally gravitate towards or speak even if it's not something you want it's something you have to learn so if you look at it as fluencies I spoke three languages when I came to the States Afrikaans French and, French and English my dad spoke 13 nine of them were tribal right so we can learn languages it's just if it feels uncomfortable to speak a particular type I don't even know how to ask for the bathroom in Spanish, y'all. So I feel like an idiot. I feel very incompetent. But that's not my capacity. That's my familiarity. So it's not unhealthy. It's unpracticed. ¿Dónde está el baño? Sí. <laughs> so, so a lot of our podcasts, we are talking with people on how do we get our hands dirty. And and I'm wondering in the work for liberation. Yes, I mean really like not not only like how do we do work, but how do we do work that actually accelerates us toward a path that creates the possibility for liberation for everyone. One hundred percent, and that's one of my favorite things um, because I think specifically once we move into a more trauma-informed version of the Enneagram. It's going to help a lot more. Um, because So basically, we should have you on once a month so that we could do more trauma-informed activist theology, brain-based activist theology. Yeah, we're just trying to become whole, right? That's, that's, uh, that's the nature of it. But the reality is, if you want to do liberation work, you have to liberate yourself first, right? Mm-hmm. This is inner work first, okay? So when you're talking about effective quality function think about the patients that I see and my story there is no shortage of really effective diagnoses in silo right everybody's got something there's a name for it but how many people have come in and gone that person comprehensively knows my story and the reality is if I'm going to effectively engage with somebody I have to comprehensively know my story Mm -hmm. and if you're doing really really good work it is quintessentially based on your capacity to know discomfort versus trauma as quickly as possible because every Everything that is built in us is our either what I refer to as childhood wounds or childhood bliss. Most of us know that there's a childhood wound, but we don't realize what we're chasing down is that particular seven-year-old experience of the first time you got a Big Mac because you're a poor kid, and now you got a love with food, but you only went to McDonald's once before your dad died. Right. Right. So it's both of those things. But if you know really how to develop resilience in yourself, then your capacity to maintain enough stamina to do the work when you get buried is very different. Mm. But the short definition for resilience is the difference between discomfort and trauma and knowing the difference between those two is the length of time for recovery so if I start to engage in work and I don't realize I don't have the stamina and I had one bad encounter with somebody who objected to everything that I did in my theology or my activism and I fall apart I may need to develop some stamina before I go back in because my trigger is causing me to fail to engage further because it's a safety mechanism at the end of the day every trigger is supportive it just may not be sustainable right so if you want to do the work you have to figure out how to sustain yourself what are my triggers what's my self-awareness and am i interpreting something as trauma when in fact it's just discomfort because when it comes to activism you can look at the last two years and sum it up with this statement okay is your way of life being threatened or is your actual life being threatened Mm. because your brain doesn't know the difference and if you're responding by storming the capital because you're life is in danger and nobody told you your way of life is in danger then you're actually responding accordingly and appropriately based on a primal survival strategy because no one said hey FYI I know that feels really hard but you're not going to die as a result of it you just think you are 
And there's a difference between that and the person who goes, every time I watch the news, I see people who look just like me actually dying. So I'm afraid that my life is actually in danger. And you're responding the same way, even though only your way of life is in danger. And if right. you don't know your triggers, you don't, you don't properly approach that. Mm. <sighs> Y'all. We, we need to do this more often. <laughs> we do. We do. And perhaps in a private setting. <laughs> perhaps in a what? In a private setting. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, y'all. My, my, my work, my, the average number of visits that I see with a patient total is eight, yeah. which is very different because I'm, I, I get to the point very, very quickly, which can sometimes be a bit of a bullseye. Sure. So I appreciate sure. it. You also got a lot of eight in you, so I'm comfortable with saying it. Uh, it's if fair. You, if I felt you more as a seven with a six wing, I would have guarded a little bit more. Yeah, no. You're right. There's different ways to learn. Oh, she can take it. She takes it all all the time from me. Yeah, that is that did not come out the way you intended it. Now, now you've got (laughs) a dirty mind. (laughs) You've got a dirty mind. Anna, it's not that kind of party. (laughs) That's all good. I already said I don't wipe the butt cheeks. (laughs) I love this so much. Oh, my God. Y'all. So this is this is how this is how this is how the activist theology podcast you know what has, you need to has do. less listeners than we like. And it's all good. You know what would be fun is if we get my identical twin brother on here and he answers. It's like we're going to do a series where he's. You, you saw like the Key and Peel anger translator yes. for Obama. <laughs> yes. We want to bring my identical twin brother on so he's the brain based translator or the layman's translator. <laughs> yes. So I'll say something and then he'll go right after that and just spontaneously. Yes. Because my twin brother is a very, very, very funny, gifted individual. Um, but we live in different worlds. Yeah. And we look exactly the same. Yeah. So we think that that would be a pretty entertaining kind of that that sounds amazing i feel like that's what's happening a little bit with you guys and so next year next year we'll We'll your twin brother can come and and so we have a little bit of time before we close um i would love um for you to take us a little further kind of into this um into this understanding of relationality and so uh, a lot of the work that robin and i do a lot of times outside of the activist theology podcast, but one of our most recent episodes was around kind of our relationship and the hard, the literal hard work mm-hmm. that it has taken. I us. call it labor, L- labor, manual yes. labor. I call it birth labor. Like, and some of it was bad. Some of it's hospice work too. Right? Some of it is hospice work. Yes. Thank you. Um, but, but a lot of what we, what we share is, um, outside of the podcast is kind of this this understanding of how we do the work being the the radical different people that we are and 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 there are we joke and and people talk all the time about kind of strange bedfellows and 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 the 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 oddities of how certain people kind of come to be in relationship with one another and some of you may know may be able to identify that in partnered intimate relationships that you know perhaps one that you're in um but but one of the things that has been curious i think to me and maybe to you too robin is how is the how is the the way that we arrive in our enneagramness um both assisting us or hindering us yeah. in the work that we're attempting to do at Active Theology. And I don't want this, this is not a question to kind of become a therapy session. No, no, no. But, but I think it's important to inform all of us 
who are attempting to be in community together and realizing that relationality and our capacity to be with one another, not just alongside one another, is really important in the work. And so perhaps you could give some examples around the the way that Robin and I are in relationship yeah. to help inform kind of how we then as individuals and those of us that are listeners to the podcast go about kind of then navigating their relationships in the work. Are you asking that because we're on access points at five and seven? Um, yes, because we're on access points, but also because we approach. I mean, what we have in common is our triad. Yeah. Um, I I am I'm curious if there are any other informed areas in which you feel as if we really are in alignment from a enneagram standpoint but I also think that it just helps to nap for all of us to na- be able to navigate kind of the greater world of relationality as we're kind of doing this. Yeah, absolutely. And and for clarification on my point, what triad do you guys share? The head triad. Head. Yeah, okay, just making sure. Um, that was my assumption. I just didn't, didn't want to assume uh, incorrectly. Um, so here's the first thing that I would say, and then I'll answer it specifically to you two. Um, has anybody ever heard the phrase, you only use 3 to 5% of your brain? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's completely wrong. Okay. You're aware of 3 to 5% of what happens to you consciously. 95 to 97% of what happens to us on a daily basis is autopilot. Mm. Right? If you think about a company, think of the whatever company comes to mind that you think is big. How many times do you think their CEO connects with every single employee in the company? Because it would be inefficient, right? That CEO has the capacity to move the entire organization, and the employees, if they band together significantly enough, can influence everything else. But it's the basics of efficiency. You have to have executive leadership that can make a quick decision and pivot everything, and then you have to have an un believable amount of resources to facilitate it. So 95% to 97% of what happens to us is autopilot. And it's based on a lifetime of every good and every bad thing that has ever happened to us that helps us to survive. So it's important to know that every decision that we're making is starting from a survival strategy. And then it moves into, okay, well, am I safe? And then it moves into, okay, but am I having a life-giving encounter? Mm. And all of that is subconscious. You haven't even hit conscious level at that point. That is autopilot. So what can be really incredible is that you move into things really well, like I'm very efficient in two. So being able to read somebody's question without them even asking it, they're wearing a mask and they're sitting behind another row of people, very helpful, okay? But if I'm doing that so much that I can't sit in a restaurant with my wife I can I can be fully present with my wife, but I can't sit in a restaurant and not actually actively hear all three of the conversations right. while I'm in conversation mm-hmm. with my wife. Yes. People are like, that's a magic trick. And I'm like, no, it's not. It's a curse. Yeah. Right. Because I am fully present with you. And I'm also fully present with three people that I don't know while I'm trying to navigate whether or not the answer that they need that would be life changing for them is actually in me. Yeah. And I have to decide at the table with my wife that I can't give it to them because it's not my place mm. because my work is to go I'm not their savior I'm not their support if it happens divine and the universe will bring them back to me but I can't constantly be moving into places to take care of people because then I compromise my own integrity and that is very hard work so the short answer is there is no greater resource on the planet than increased self-awareness consciousness and intentional attention to what it is that you do unintentionally 
and on autopilot. You become more aware of what your defaults are. You can choose to change that. That's the nature of neuroplasticity. I have a bias towards anxiety or depression or panic or OCD or disconnection or a lack of relationship or too much relationship. What is cycling through my system on a regular basis? So I became aware of it. What strategy or support or action would be effective for me to go, okay, I want to navigate that differently. But I can't know where I'm going if I don't know where I am. Right. right? I have to orient. Right. So case in point with you in your space and this is for the sake of time not something we can get into but the work that I'm working on is helping people understand how to navigate the world like if I wanted to go to Europe how would I effectively plan that trip there are ways to do it right so if you know that you're a five and a seven they have a direct non-stop flight between each other but five also has a non-stop flight with eight Mm -hmm. and you have eight seven has a non-stop flight with both for, uh, one, one and four. seven. No, yeah, so seven. for these sort of things in that situation, uh, five doesn't have a direct connection with, um, sorry, I'm, I'm going to lose everybody if I do that. My point is that if you look up what's called lines of integration um, and know that it's a both and then some, a lot of the work in the Enneagram as you start to read it is tied to integration and disintegration. Yes. There are no one-way roads in the brain. It doesn't work that way. Okay. So I want you to move away from thinking one is healthy and one is stressful and think you will have either a mature response simultaneously or an immature response simultaneously. So case in point, just to anchor it to five and seven. Five, seven, and eight dance a lot with each other. So if you have a mature response as a seven, you're going, oh, I know the next step. And also I've asked a clarifying question that's allowed me to know the next step. And if you're connected to somebody who's high in five, they're going, oh, I see that your inspiration is not life-threatening. When your energy goes up, it isn't a trigger for me because I'm allergic to adrenaline and you're addicted to it. So I can feel safe with you. And your disruptiveness has happened in a way that's allowed me to know that that isn't going to be consequential to my capacity to learn. You're not an obstruction. You're a connection. So when you have those places together, it really still comes back to you have intentionally built relationship that allows you to both feel safer with each other and the more approachable you become, this is the way I would sum it up. When fear goes up, cognition goes down. Cognition is both thinking and feeling emotionally. So if you can't think clearly and you can't feel clearly, there's probably a stressor that needs to be resolved. But if your fear drops and you're both actively thinking and feeling together on a high plan, a, a conscious plan, the stuff that you can build is tremendous. But if you can't think clearly and feel clearly, then you got to lower the fear, the stress. And for people like, ah, I'm not fearful. Fear is synonymous with stress, input, or effort. So the more you stress, input, or effort, it's the same thing as fear. It's the amount of work your body is doing to compromise your ability to think and feel clearly. So we're a good match. Yeah, like I feel like... All, all that does, Jerome, is it actually like a firm, like I feel like Robin and I are doing the hard work and yeah. we're doing the hard work in a way that is life-giving yeah. um, because that all resonates with kind of exactly the things that we name to one another. Yeah, and then so, you're talking about actual, because what is the world that you are both living in in terms of being an affirming space, right? If you're not right. effectively affirming, you're affirming not only somebody's potential, but right. also have to have a comfortable and appropriate way to say, hey, here's an opportunity for improvement but that doesn't mean you're broken this is a space where if you shift and you adjust this a bit you become a more whole expression of what's naturally in you so it's not an issue of capacity it's a conversation around utilization Mm. so Mm. what are you using and what are you practicing yes thank you so much you're welcome jerome um 
we are coming to the end of our time together and literally we could do this for another hour. Um, can you share with our listeners how they can find you, how they can be in touch with you, where they can find your book? Um, if they were to need a one-stop shop for all the things, Jerome, what's the best way for them to be in contact with you? Yeah. The the best way is just drjerome.com. It's just D-R-J-E-R-O-M-E.com. I think they have some books left in the bookstore here. Um, but everything is available there. And I always encourage everybody, if anything landed here for you, your brain takes about 21 days just to get familiar that you're trying to have a conversation, not 21 days to form a habit. So if you listen and you're like, oh my God, I got like one thing. Yeah, that's actually healthy. That's the one thing that was relevant for you. But if anything in this is important or anything that Dr. Robin or Anna are ever doing, if you don't go back and listen to the thing that really landed for you, it probably won't stick. So if something felt right for you and you wanted to come back again, you're going to have to come back and revisit it because it's practice. Okay, it's practice. Mm. But drjerome.com is the easiest way to connect with everything that I do. Thank you so much. Can everyone else thank Dr. Jerome for being here with us? Thank you. Um, Friends, Friends, you will um, you will know that you can join us at Activist Theology. Don't forget that activist and theology share a T. Find us on activisttheology.com. Engage with us. Also, don't forget to visit atporch.com. Dr. Robin and myself and our colleagues at Activist Theology have launched an app that actually allows us to be in community and conversation with one another. And you can find and download that app at atporch.com Dr. Robin this has been this has been one for the books as far as I'm concerned Um, we only have one choice at this point going forward let's get free (laughs) y'all thank you so much this is wonderful we want to thank you for listening this week we encourage you to share this podcast with your community if you enjoy us and our work in the world please give us five stars on your podcast platform. Want to help support this podcast? Go to activisttheology.com and click on podcast. We can only do this work with the help of you, our listeners. You have no idea how much even a small monthly or one-time gift means to this work. The music you hear in this episode is Hands Dirty by Delta Ray. Our sound editor is Dan Medley from 10 South Sounds. I get my hands dirty. I show up so early. They show me no mercy. So I just keep working. Maybe God could save me. Or my boss might pay me. You are listening to an irreverent podcast. Visit irreverent.fm for more content from our friends.